This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Monday, July the 4th, 2022. As part of the Disability Britain series, the mirror's running this week. You're being lied to about disabled people. We're capable of amazing things. I cannot remember becoming disabled. A seizure meant I lost consciousness, hit the concrete with my face, and then spent a few weeks healing and waiting to see a neurologist. He then announced that, because this was my second seizure, I was officially epileptic with a sort of internal short circuit that could either knock me out, kill me, or merely deliver a lifetime of worry. The really memorable bit was when the neurologist asked me what I needed to do to fix it. You're the brain doctor, I exploded. You tell me. It was a bit rude, but then I was a bit unhappy. It's not nice to hear you were born with a flaw that a brain surgeon can't fix, and even harder to accept that dealing with it will be your problem and not his. In part, that's the nature of epilepsy. But it's also down to the fact that in this country, disability is treated as a distant moral issue, a problem we all expect someone else to fix. Which is why people who want you to vote for them tell you they have the cure. It's usually economic and comes in the form of a crackdown on scroungers, work programmes for those in genuine need and an overall budget cut because the real problem with disability, we're all told from the cradle, is how much it costs everyone else. Except what disabled people are and do and are capable of is far more than economic. And what they need is a government that will not crack down, but instead lend a hand. There are 14 million Brits with a disability. Some are age-related, like pensioners with deafness or mobility problems. Some are children, like those born with parts that aren't working right. And 8.4 million of them are of working age with a childhood problem that wasn't fixed, or a problem like mine which arrived in adulthood, and all trying to do the multitude of things other grown-ups do, like raise a family or keep a roof over their heads. Just under 4.5 million have a job. Either their disability, like mine, is mild, or it's manageable. And for 14% of us, the best way of working is to be self-employed, to shoulder the financial risks and fend for ourselves, without the support of employers who are not all as understanding as they could be. When I had my first seizure, I was a mirror reporter and the editor was very good about my inability to drive for a year. When I had my second, I was freelance and the fact I had to change how I travelled and lived to turn down some work was no one's concern but mine. Last month, after nine years of temporary driving licences and DVLA wrangles, I finally had my full licence returned. But I could never be a full-time reporter again. The late nights, the airport dashes, time zone changes, stress and poor diet would be as likely to invite a seizure as a crack pipe and a bottle of absinthe. But my health can always get worse. And so could yours. You could have a car accident, an infection or a fall. You could be on the wrong end of a punch, a fungus or a fundamental design flaw. Most disabled people were dealt an imperfect hand, but nevertheless continue to play the game. 
They go to work, fall in love, raise families, care for others. Many are invisible because they don't have a wheelchair or crutches, but a stoma bag, an atrial fibrillation or mental illness. Yet most people don't realise the disabled are also productive. Perhaps that's why 9 in 10 of all reports about disability benefit fraud to the DWP hotline turn out to be false. Maybe it's linked to the fact that those with psychological disabilities seem to suffer disproportionately from the government's fitness to work assessments. It may even have something to do with a study which found that since austerity measures began in 2010, hundreds of disabled people have died, either abandoned or at their own hand, due to the slow bureaucratic violence of a state which has falsely claimed for centuries that the disabled are too much of a burden. Yet the government's own figures show one in five working age Brits are disabled, an increase since 2014. They're more likely to be part-time and to do low-skilled jobs. Disabilities can be permanent or they can come and go. Every year, 340,000 disabled people leave work, but 380,000 more find a job. That's not a burden so much as a flexible workforce that deserves some damned respect for managing all that while living with things like chronic pain, endometriosis, schizophrenia or learning difficulties. Some employers are considerate. One friend in a wheelchair takes his carer to work. Others, as countless employment tribunals show, find any reason to sack an employee who they don't realise is working harder and showing more dedication and commitment to their tasks than someone who doesn't require the use of a disabled loo. And it is no gravy train. I have a friend crippled by long Covid fighting his local planning department to get a dropped curb outside his house because he can't walk to the end of the road where he used to park pre-pandemic. Another chap with arthritis in his ankles wanted to get a blue badge to park near the supermarket, but no, that's possible only with benefits he doesn't qualify for. A disability doesn't mean you get stuff for free. It usually means you have to fight harder and longer and more expensively than anyone able-bodied has to for the things you ought to have anyway. The fact the DWP hotline is about fraud that barely exists and not offering help says it all. Compared to how it felt nine years ago to be told I was disabled, I'm glad that managing it is now up to me and no one else. I'm lucky to be able to change my work to suit my needs. With enough sleep and not too much stress, which is a major factor in causing seizures, my epilepsy has so far been kept at bay. Colin Trainer was more epileptic than I, but in 2012, as the Tories began their austerity overhaul of welfare, he was ruled fit to work. He was put through the financial stress of having his benefits stopped, then the added pressure of appealing the decision. He died following a seizure, before his family learned his appeal had been successful. Grandad Errol Graham was allowed to starve to death because he was too mentally ill to argue for the help he needed. Michael O'Sullivan and Jodie Whiting both took their own lives, having been told they were fit to work when they weren't even fit to survive such a setback. How many more people would still be with us, playing with grandchildren, maybe even recovering, if they'd been helped instead of hindered? Probably thousands. And if you include the fact 60% of Covid deaths were disabled people, then it's hundreds of thousands. We have our vulnerabilities, but we are not weaker. We have our needs, but we are not a burden. We are, quite simply, you. We vote, we work, we love, we hurt, we exist in bigger numbers than ever before. And with poverty, food deserts, fuel crisis, the cost of living, a damaged NHS and next to non-existent mental health care, our numbers are growing. You may feel fine now, but trust me, that's not necessarily a permanent state of affairs. Older, younger, rich, poor, sick or getting better, 
disabled people have done and are doing amazing things. They are a productive and driven workforce, informed and passionate activists, and an increasingly important voter demographic. So it's a great pity that Work and Pensions Secretary Therese Coffey spends so much of her time defending the Prime Minister's handling of sex scandals and so little defending the disabled, who would welcome the help. But no government will stop cracking down on the people who are a little bit cracked until all voters tell them to stop it. Perhaps that starts now, with the Mirror's week-long series on Disability Britain, by and about people who are not all in wheelchairs and who are not prepared to hide. There have been moments when my diagnosis was devastating, but far more where it stirred me to do better. Nowadays, I prefer to think of myself as more abled, more able to understand and more able to fix what's gone wrong. It would be lovely if all those disabled by an unhealthy belief in their own perfection could do the same. This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Friday, July the 8th, 2022. Boris Johnson has just days left. This is the last best thing he can do with them. Future schoolchildren will need to be taught the difference between Boris Johnson and Anne Boleyn. One had a reign that involved parties, castle dashes, unnecessary deaths, enrichment of favourites, gold wallpaper, allegations of treason, constitutional upheaval, and it all ended in disgrace after less than three years. The other was married to Henry VIII. But while Anne was murdered by her brute of a husband 1,084 days after he crowned her, Boris was brought down by the Tories 1,081 days after his own coronation. This makes him slightly less popular than a woman falsely accused of witchcraft and incest in an illiterate country where news had to travel on foot because Satan had yet to invent the Daily Whale. There will be much arguing, mostly from Boris and those who attach themselves to him like scraps of toilet paper around a roughy white backside, about his legacy and whether the best thing he did for Britain was to get Brexit half done or to help Ukraine be semi-defended. The 6.5 million on an NHS waiting list, the 3 million mourning the dead of Covid, the 475,000 civil servants who have seen the country's machinery grind to a halt, and countless armchair economists who noticed the costs of Brexit were cynically signed off under cover of a pandemic, may feel differently and vote so. But almost all of them will fail to note that the axe fell on the blonde bombshell when the Conservative Party went on strike. Efforts to get him to leave with immediate effect have faded away, and Johnson is now doing what he once criticised Gordon Brown for his constitutional duty, acting as a caretaker until a new leader can be selected so that day-to-day decisions are signed off by a ship of state that still has something resembling a crew. Albeit one, where the role of Smee is played by Nadine Dorries, Jacob Rees-Mogg is the parrot, and Liz Truss turns in the performance of a lifetime as a wooden leg. For however many days that period lasts, he has the discretion to deal with urgent issues, but is expected to avoid anything with long-term implications. He should stick to what has broad support and, of course, refine that resignation honours list, which, with luck, will see Pretty Patel removed from political relevance hereafter. While Carrie packs up her £500 tablecloth, the £6,000 lamp and £15,000 worth of sofas, Johnson will be downloading his emails, shredding the receipts and thinking about which PR man for his next career in showbiz. But like everyone else, he'll be worrying about legacy – And there is only one thing which will still allow him to lob rocks at the establishment 
but no one will ever criticise him for. A month ago today, Johnson became the first Prime Minister to ever sit down with a nuclear test veteran and their families. For 70 minutes, he listened aghast, declared himself amazed, offered his condolences and asked the Daily Mirror where the Ministry of Defence had buried the evidence, before promising to end the injustice of the longest-running scandal in Britain. Minutes later, he ordered his ministers to find a solution and after the bloodletting of the past 48 hours, he's just appointed Johnny Mercer to be Minister for Veterans Affairs, who has previously said he thinks the decision not to award a medal to the test veterans was wrong. As I type, Whitehall is looking for ways to protect itself, either by finding an excuse to award a medal it had previously refused, or to play out the game long enough that Johnson is gone. If he leaves office without any resolution for the test veterans, the blob which he blamed for so many of his ills will have won again. But if he can use what remains of his power in the time he has left to wield it, he can do what he enjoys best. Disrupt, enrage and delight cause his critics to gnash their teeth and at the same time ensure there is one bit of gold with which to gild his Wikipedia entry. It doesn't involve any long-term policy changes. It will cause no headaches for his successor. It has cross-party support from all corners of Parliament and is also urgent. The 70th anniversary of Britain's first bomb test, Operation Hurricane, is just three months away in October. Its few remaining survivors may not all last another Covid winter, and if any Prime Minister is to honour these men, it must be Johnson and no other. I told him when the meeting began that only he had the power to end this injustice, and that was why it mattered that he had agreed to meet. The plan then was for a second meeting when he would reveal his decision, but that now seems unlikely. Everything Johnson said and did will be argued over for years, and perhaps he'll like that idea once he's ensconced in a Tuscan villa with the oligarch of his choice and a lifelong security detail to protect him from the further attentions of his nemesis, Pepper Crera. The veterans met not the man, but the minister. They asked the wielder of the Queen's honours for a medal and told him that all veterans, alive, dead or too angry to accept any gong in return for their suffering, deserved a moment of national recognition at Westminster Abbey. Those things are urgent the little time left to these men and to the Prime Minister make this a crisis. And if Johnson wants to hurl one last brick through the Whitehall greenhouse, then this is the thing that ticks every box Carrie hasn't already packed. It would also oblige at least one Mirror reporter to sing his praises until the end of her days. And trust me, that ain't going to happen for anything else he might try. Berlin is remembered by history as a woman ahead of her time, Johnson, I suspect, will go down as a man born half a century too late for his. Let the record show that whatever he did or will do, he was capable of one last act of political perfection. 